listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to augmentation designer Danny Claude and researcher Paulina Kaliba. If we adapt to use an extra thumb, an extra arm, tentacle, wings or a tail, how would that impact the resources we have in our brain that are devoted to controlling our normal thumbs? You know, augmentation has almost no limits. Danny and Paulina shared their insights into designing a robotic third thumb, how the human brain supports and integrates augmentation devices, and how we can begin to use advanced prosthetics to extend our abilities in new and unexpected ways. So Danny, you created a unique augmentation device, a third thumb. And I guess the obvious question is, why? <laughs> yeah, that is a good question. Yeah, so I was doing my uh, master's degree at the Royal College of Art in, in design products. And yeah, I just became kind of fascinated with with prosthetics as objects. They seem to kind of, uh, you know, cross this really unique kind of boundaries between, uh, you know, tools and, and body parts and, and, you know, extension and, and addition. And, and I wanted to kind of really explore that relationship and, and kind of explore this product that is, you know, so unique in these kind of different forms that it has and different interactions with, with people. And so I started uh, designing prosthetic arms uh, with the Alternative Limb Project um, and then but obviously starting studying product design. Uh, I really wanted to understand what the relationship was like myself and, and really just kind of wanted to feel that that feeling of kind of controlling something extra attached to my body and uh, yeah looked down on my hands just kind of thought well there's nothing more human than a thumb uh, and also such a challenging part of a prosthetic hand design as well um, you know it's, so, it's such a unique movement we have so much control and just kind of trying to recreate that kind of movement and then something about yeah that kind of symmetrical positioning on the hand seemed to be interesting and kind of accepted because I knew I was dealing with a really strong kind of weird you know factor and wanted to uh, to kind of make sure it was still slightly accepted by people trying it on and so yeah went, went with that spot so why not something why not something weird why don't you look at the animal kingdom and go hey you know what we, we, we don't need a thumb how about a tentacle I'll, I'll attach a, an extra tentacle to the arm well, or something I, I have made a tentacle since <laughs> <laughs> it's the vine arm you can see it on the alternative limb project uh-huh. uh, yeah we made a vine arm for uh, for Kelly Knox uh, who's a disability rights activist model so yeah that's a whole different thing but I know you know augmentation has almost no limits uh, you know kind of in terms of our imagination but I think to kind of begin, we need to, you know, have some connection to the body and some kind of closeness to, to not be too other and to start to explore that kind of relationship with the body. Yeah, the, I think I just find thumbs just totally fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, someone else who finds thumbs totally fascinating clearly is, is you, Paulina, because you two came together to have a unique collaboration to really study the impact of what happens when human beings develop this thing called a third thumb. So, Paulina, I'm, I'm fascinated in, in your background. What, what interested you? in taking Danny's augmentation device and really looking closely at its impact on the brain and the body? Yeah, so I have a quite different background, as you said. Uh, I come from engineering and neuroscience. And for us in the plasticity lab, we've always seen augmentation as kind of this great model to explore where the boundaries of brain plasticity are. We work a lot with amputees and we've always been asking ourselves these questions of, you know, how much can we harness brain plasticity to help these people regain the lost functions? Then we had this crazy thought of, 
why you know don't we switch focus for a little bit and instead of talking about regaining lost functions talk about gaining new ones just to help us characterize where the boundary, where that limit of that brain plasticity is. And thinking about that, planning that research, we saw Danny's device online when it went viral. It was like everywhere, YouTube, every kind of social media you can imagine. And so I just dropped Danny one or two lines over an email. She responded very quickly, and that's how our journey started. I was keen. I was ready for this research. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> finally, someone wants to play with my thumbs. Uh, so, so Polina, <laughs> Polina, I mean, if anybody doesn't know, you've used this word brain plasticity. So, so what is brain plasticity? In what way is the brain plastic? And, and why is it so important for the way in which we think about integrating augmented devices into our body schema? That's a great question, a really big one also. <laughs> so, you know, just to keep it simple, brain plasticity is the ability of our brain to learn and adapt based on our everyday experiences. So it can be just learning a new skill, but it can also be something as extreme as adapting how your brain is organized due to using this external device, the third tamp. And it's extremely important to sort of consider that brain plasticity in terms of all sorts of augmentation devices, really. Because given that our brain can learn and adapt to use those, we need to know what that adaptation is and what it entails. As in, if we adapt to use an extra thumb, an extra arm, tentacle, wings, or a tail, how would that impact the resources we have in our brain that are devoted to controlling our normal thumbs or normal arms or well, we don't have normal wings or normal tails, but, uh, well, normal body parts. And would that impact be bad or good for us? So these are our very big and very open-ended questions. We don't have answers to them yet, but we're trying to figure out what those could be. So, Danny, for, for anybody who doesn't know, how does the third thumb actually work? It, it's this beautiful image when you see it online of, of, a, of a thumb protruding from the, the opposite side of the hand, but it, it moves. It's able to grip. It's it able to be used. Yes. So what processes make that possible? Yeah, so starting from on the hand. Uh, so on the hand, you kind of wear a, um, a hand piece that wraps kind of around that kind of um, front part and back part of the kind of you know other side of your, your palm, mm-hmm. uh, opposite your, your biological thumb, and then coming out of that is kind of this flexible three D printed thumb. So I print I print it all uh, in one piece, and that travels through onto the base of the hand as well. So you get a little bit of mechanical feedback from the thumb as well, um, and then from that is a kind of Bowden tubing system that attaches to the motors. The motors are, are worn on the wrist, um, so like kind of where you wear a watch, and then um, up on the upper arm is is a battery pack. Uh, the wrist part also contains the microcontroller, uh, which is wise, wirelessly connected to um, the pressure sensors in on your feet. So on your feet, underneath your big toes, you've got uh, two pressure sensors, uh, force resistor sensors, and they are you know wired to uh, something that's either worn on the side of you. I wear it on the side of my shoe, uh, or you can have it around your ankles, and those are wirelessly connected, and those are sending kind of controller signals to uh, the motors on the wrist, um, and they have proportional control. So I work with yeah, there's pressure sensors with servos and so it's really it's not kind of um you know like a a prosthetic arm that's maybe a a muscle sensor kind of trigger you know you trigger it and then it does a grip Uh, this is proportional control so there's a so as you press down you're seeing the thumb you know move uh, and feeling the thumb move um slowly as you press down fast it moves fast it kind of releases so it's very 
responsive to to how you control it, which is what I like to do and in, in, incorporate in all my kind of augmentation and prosthetic designs. So, so the third thumb is is something known as a, as a motor augmentation. Now, how is a motor augmentation different from all of the sorts of other augmentations that human beings could uh, potentially gain? I guess you could start from you know, how do we even define augmentation? I mean, I think in terms of a dictionary definition, if we, if we want to go to the dictionary, it's it's hard because it's, uh, you know, it's really just addition, extension, you know, more growth, you know, kind of uh-huh. you know, stuff like that. And so I guess you'd go for something that's quite, you know, basic, like any surgeries with implants uh, or anything like that is is technically kind of an augmentation. And then I guess the motor side uh, from for me is, is the kind of movement and addition. But then I guess for, for Paulina, uh, in the plasticity lab, motor means something a bit different. No, no, it's uh, pretty much the same. It has to okay. do with movement, right? So motor yeah. augmentation is something that allows us to move differently, to perform movements that were not possible before. And um, different kind of augmentation would be, for example, sensory augmentation, right? And the Neil Harrison, the Eiberg mm. guy, that would be an example of that. He's adding an extra sense to his body. The third time is not really adding an extra sense. It's just adding an extra body part that can move in a different way. So it enhances our motor functions, our ability to move and interact with the world. Now, Paulina, you used that word there, enhance. I mean, do you feel like the third thumb is an enhancement? What extra abilities, I guess, does the third thumb provide? Or did you realize in your study, in actual fact, that having an additional sixth appendage on a hand can sometimes get in the way? I mean, at the very beginning, it can probably get in the way sometimes just because you're not used to having Uh it, right? But it's not so much right now about whether it does provide extra function. It's more about whether it provides extra possibilities. Mm. And this is, you know, something that's really up to your creativity, how you decide to use it and how you decide to incorporate it in your daily life. It does allow you to grasp more. It does allow you to do more with one hand. For example, in... uh, One of our training tasks, we asked people to carry and flip, I think, one, two, three, four, five wine glasses, which is impossible to do normally. Or, you know, like stare content of a like coffee mug or whatever glass in the air, like while holding that glass. That's, you know, perhaps doable with one hand, but not something people do on a daily basis. So such augmentative devices a third time, but definitely allow you more possibilities to interact mm-hmm. with the world but how you do that it's really it's really up to you and people come up with very different use scenarios well danny what are some of those wild use scenarios that you've actually seen <laughs> yeah so my kind of main you know when, when designing it it was very much about into the hand so mm. ac- across the hand and so kind of bringing the thumb so really those really kind of subtle movements and perhaps splitting you know, the hand into kind of into two as, you know, trying to recreate that kind of thumb, index, middle finger kind of grasp with perhaps the, the ring finger and the little finger and an extra digit. So just kind of really trying to split that hand up, which we just kind of saw in our, you know, finger uh, maps, you know, with this with the study. Um, is finger maps the right word, Paulina? Um, I mean, we didn't look precisely at finger maps. <laughs> Sorry, I'm kidding. F- finger maps <laughs> is palm reading, isn't it, Paulina? No, yeah, uh, okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> 
I have so much, I have so much uh, terminology I need to l- learn with <laughs> these collaborations. I, I guess that would also be that. But th- there is a term finger maps in the neuroscientific community. So not, that's not very far off. It's just something slightly different. Okay. So yeah, just trying to yeah really kind of get more functional at hand, and and then and also um, you know with our task just kind of being able to grasp something with the hand and then freeing up that kind of um, thumb, index, middle finger, which is uh, you know for, for us we're so dexterous with those fingers, you know practice with you know opening a bottle, um, you know holding tools. I think I've just managed to thread a needle, so I can hold a needle with uh, with the third thumb and thread it with my index and thumb. That's like incredibly um, so, impressive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, and also, um, yeah, kind of multi-grasp. We have a like multiple balls uh, task in the study as well, which in terms of increasing the grasp of the hand. But yeah, for me personally, it's just it's those really kind of dexterous tasks that are, that are really interesting. It's so interesting that when you first launched the uh, third thumb, it really captured the imagination of individuals. It was this this beautiful provocation, uh, the showing a possibility for what a, a future human could potentially look like when augmented by technology. And then seeing that additional appendage was such a visceral image. But the way in which these devices work is they don't just capture the imagination, they can actually fundamentally change the brain. And Polina, I, I want to turn to you and ask, uh, what did your, your recent study show in, in how people are uh, finding this enhancement begins to change really them, their brain, and the way in which they navigate the world. This is actually something that we find very surprising that we managed to capture that change in the brain, given the fact that we only ask people to wear and use that thumb for five days. But what we looked at was the representation of their natural hand in the sensory motor cortex. Mm -hmm. So the part of the brain that's normally dealing with movement and sensing the world, right? And in that part of the brain, we all have this thing called hand representation, where every single digit is represented quite distinctly, one next to the other, in a similar organization as in our actual, you know, biological hand. And after using the third time for five days, we saw that our participants started, well, they didn't start changing the hand representation, the hand representation uh, started changing in Mm. such a way that all these individual fingers in the movement region, right, became more alike to one another. So moving your natural thumb and moving your index finger was now more similar than it was before having an augmented hand. And that's something incredibly, incredibly surprising and interesting because the same hand representation, as I've mentioned before in our lab, we work quite a lot with amputees and um, we see that people that lost their hand 20 years ago, 10 years ago, they still have that hand representation in the brain and mm. it's quite stable. So to see that here, only after five days of training, there are some changes was was quite exciting. And why was it important to you to carry out this study on able-bodied individuals? Why, why was it important to define the, the parameters there and ensure that this could be seen as a form of augmentation? One thing, this augmentation sort of not research, but augmentative technologies are becoming more and more popular. Like mm-hmm. every year we hear about engineers building new devices that are supposed to adds to our normal functions, enhances, allow us to do more, to run faster, to do Hmm. things better. And I think until now, there hasn't really been much talk into how does 
our brain react to that? And is it even able to support it? So we were, you know, fast tracking all the technological progress, but I feel like we haven't stopped to ask, okay, is that technological progress, are we able to deal with that? Mm -hmm. Is our brain going to be able to handle it? And we wanted to have that discussion, you know, now rather than in 10 or 20 years when all these devices are on the market and everyone is trying to use them and they may cause some problems, they may not, we don't know. So we wanted to, you know, get into it now and start having that discourse quite early on. I mean, that was the stunning thing that only after five days that individuals were starting to incorporate this this additional appendage into their body schema. And for you, Danny, as a, as a product designer, to suddenly realize that your device, the thing that you created, had such a massive impact on human bodies and brains. I mean, uh, what did that feel like for you? Oh, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, it, it was, it was <laughs> I, to be honest, like this project really started as, as kind of just an exploration into kind of understanding mm. this relationship and then seeing it online and the response that I got online, you know, and then I, in that way, I saw it as like, yeah, this catalyst for conversation. People were discussing mm. it, you know, in comments and, and discussing it. So that's where I thought that would live. And then Paulina contacting me and having this whole new life in, in this research, it's just, you know, it's constant. And I keep iterating the design as well, but also working in the lab and, and working with the participants as well, kind of seeing their response. But, you know, everyone, everyone's response the first time they, they've um, put it on is, is always, they just stare at it, <laughs> stare at it, just so amazed. And, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly uh, excited at, at the next kind of um, thing that happens with this project. Well, for spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't read this study, it, basically you, you spend five days with these individuals and you study the changes in their brain through multiple different ways, from fMRI to allowing them to fill out questionnaires through different training in the lab. From a methodological standpoint, Paulina, why was it so important that you incorporated things like brain imaging, motion tracking, the force sensors in the hand? Why was it so integral to collect so much data on how people were using and I guess in some ways being used by the third thumb. Yeah, I mean, we just wanted to have as complete picture as possible, mm -hmm. right? There are some things that questioners want to pick up on or behavioral tasks like asking people to do something and measuring reaction times or force productions and that brain imaging can allow us to answer quite easily and Vice versa, there are things that we cannot pick up with the techniques we are using for brain imaging, but that we could potentially pick up with stuff like questionnaires mm. or um, force measurements. So we just wanted to have as complete picture as possible. Well, that's, that's one of the things I find so fascinating about the study was this embodiment questions. You were asking them questions with regards to things like body ownership. You know, does the robotic finger, does it belong to you? Does it feel like it's part of your hand, part of your body? Does it feel like a, a foreign object? Does it feel like it's fused with your body? Does it feel like you have six fingers? I mean, these, these are highly provocative questions that, that you're asking individuals to, to really question how personally they feel this thing. Thing is integrated into their into their body. Was there any surprising things that came from um, that questionnaire? Yeah, this this is highly personal for the people that filled in these questionnaires, and it's you know, I'm not sure if it was surprising, but it was definitely exciting mm. to see that all these people that used the first time for five days, they actually did start feeling like it was becoming a part of their hand, like it was becoming a part of their body, like. 
it was something normal for them to have six fingers. And importantly, that's not something that we observed in the control group of people, right? So apart from these 20 people that we trained to use this third time, we also recruited 11 controls. So people that wore the third time, but just had no control over it whatsoever. It was static. Mm -hmm. It was not movable. But they still wore it for for the same duration of time. And they didn't report that. They didn't report having any increased sense of ownership, of agency of that uh, of that extra device, suggesting that, you know, just wearing something on your hand and, you know, just having it as sort of an accessory Mm -hmm. is not enough to sort of give you that feeling of this is a part of me. So it was definitely exciting to see that. But then we also have to be, you know, a little bit cautious because the way we probed these things, the embodiment was through questionnaires. So it was self-reported. Mm. And, you know, people have very different subjective opinions. With questionnaires, they also sometimes feel like, you know, maybe they are expected to answer one way or another. We don't think that's the case. Um, that's why we ask them to fill in these questionnaires twice to make sure but, you know, this is just one aspect of embodiment. We were really probed this way. It was amazing actually seeing the, the change. Mm. And for me as a designer, and, and you know, this, this was a collaboration, but also, I, you know, I worked in the lab. I worked with the participants and I was collecting data as well some days. And to see the change over the week between this relationship, which is really the start of the project, um, you know, why I was interested in the first place was just so satisfying. And, you know, we had one girl, she like, didn't want to give it back she you know had to say goodbye she had to have a moment to say goodbye to it like it's just it was so so crazy and I mean I think the most I wore was during my exhibition at RCA and I wore it for a full week but I didn't do near the hours that they did because mm-hmm. um, I was taking it on and off and obviously I wasn't doing the training that they were doing as well this intensive training for two hours and then they also took it home you know I think that's them taking it home taking it out of the lab you know they got to just do what they wanted with it seeing it in their own, you know, home settings as well, really kind of helped, you know, reinforce this connection that was developing. And it was just so fascinating to see it across the week just develop. Yeah, we also had one girl that actually named it. I don't remember what the name was, (laughs) but I remember she did give it a name. It was super sweet. And I've seen that happen with, you know, people with their prosthetics, you know, it's, it's just, yeah, it's really, it's really interesting, this relationship with this product. For for some people, did it really feel like an organ? I know Neil Harbisson, the, the colorblind artist, because he has, I guess, worn, but now it's more integrated into his, his skull. But because he's had the antenna that allows him to hear color for so long, he, he doesn't see it as a device anymore. He really does see it as an extension of his body. And if you go up to him and try and touch the camera, he'll recoil in the same way as if I went up to either of you and tried to touch you on the nose. He, he really does see it no longer as a device but as this organ yeah i mean I, t- to be honest a lot of people um because obviously there's a the sensory element you know a lot of people ask me if i you know put kind of feedback mm. electronic feedback into it um and i haven't it's it's kind of it's all mechanical but i've designed it in a way that when you touch the thumb if you wear the thumb long enough uh, like i have you know for a long t- period of time you can actually tell the difference even between the the, the tip of the thumb and that middle uh, section as well you can actually feel the difference wow. and you know i can feel when someone you know, is stroking different textures with it because there's a lot of mechanical things going on the hand is obviously so receptive to different vibrations and different areas and you start to learn the kind of different uh, spots and then also that's even before you turn it on then when you turn it on you've got the, the vibration of the motors and the, and the two different motors obviously do the two different um the flexion, flexion extension and adduction abduction and then in between you can feel those the motors kind of pulling and, and tensioning at different times and so there's a lot going on that and I don't 
at this stage want to put in any kind of fake uh, feedback because I think this yeah. kind of mechanical feedback is, is so visceral and, and kind of, you know, it really inf- reinforces that that feeling that you kind of have control over this thing and, and you can feel kind of the, the end of it. I mean, in many ways, that shows the the power of the human brain to really integrate yeah. an appendage like this into into the body, and it's, it's what Andy Clark would call profound embodiment. If we really want to create true cyborgs, the way in which to do it is sometimes less is more. It's very is those very subtle relationships that we have with with tools and technology, but more importantly, not just a subtle relationship, but a durational relationship. The the act of wearing it for long periods of time is the thing that eventually allows it to become part of the body. A lot of people think that when it comes to augmentation, it's just plug and play. But really, it's it's more plug and plug and wait. You have to realize that there's going to be... <laughs> plug and train. Yeah, plug and train, exactly. <laughs> plug and train, yeah. Plug and train. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's going to be a process through which it can take a multiple amount of time for your brain to accept it as part of you. For Neil Hobbison, it was, it was 10 years and now he reportedly dreams in sonochromatic dreams, subjectively reports that. And it feels the, the, the same way with something like this. And Danny, I'm, I'm fascinated by your personal experience of using the thumb. I notice you're not wearing it now. I mean, do you <laughs> consider yourself an individual who now has 11 fingers or are you someone who wears it occasionally as a, maybe a fashion accessory? I mean, uh, what is your relationship with your third thumb? Yeah, I mean, so firstly, yeah, even though the, the you know, we have training, we've got, got a lot of new studies kind of happening in the lab with the third thumb as well. No one can use mine. My, uh, my thumb is my thumb. Does it, <laughs> so, does it um, have a name, Danny? Does it have a name yet? No, it, doesn't, right. it doesn't actually. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't have a name. But, uh, but yeah, so there is a definitely a personal attachment and I would feel really weird if someone else was to put it on. <laughs> I, I have to say I do kind of leave my work, at, you know, at all work right. at the moment. Um, so because I'm, you know, obviously working on it all day, it is quite hard for me to just kind of take it home as well but when I put it on I do feel like it's really hard to describe <laughs> because it's been so many years I think I, you know, I started this in 2017 so and I've been iterating it for you know for the, all that time as well so um, and making it stronger and, and you know more kind of dexterous and, and with different um, controls as well so it's just um, yeah it, it's when I put it on it does feel like I have kind of put something back on that that was missing. And I know that's a lot to say, <laughs> but I do kind of feel, yeah, because because I've just gotten so used to it. And I've tried because I, I made a left-handed one. I've, you know, my the main thumb is is a right-handed uh-huh. um, thumb, and that's it's a very boring reason why it's because I'm left-handed and I could work <laughs> on it whilst I was wearing it. <laughs> but um, but yeah, my uh, I have made a left-handed thumb as well, and it didn't feel the same. Interesting. So it's it's because I did, haven't had that training, or like not training specifically, but just haven't had that time wearing it. This is just subjective feelings, obviously, but it's it's something different. Well, as you mentioned, Danny, that the, the thumb is controlled by the toes in in many ways. It makes it very hard to use the the thumb whilst walking for that reason. But yes. Paulina, if the thumb is controlled by the toes, then why didn't the toes become part of the hand? What's going on there in the human brain? That's a very good question. We, When we started this study, we actually had this hypothesis uh-huh. that, you know, after these five days, perhaps the toes will not necessarily become a part of the hand representation, but maybe there would be more connectivity, let's say, functional connectivity between these regions. So, you know, when you activate your hand region, maybe the toe region would activate as well. We did expect to find more similarity between those body parts in the brain, and we didn't. The short answer is, 
I don't know why. I was really betting on that one. That was the one I was really expecting to fight. (laughs) And then it just didn't happen. And it's difficult to say why. I don't even have like a good guesstimation or a hypothesis. Perhaps this was just not enough in terms of time. Maybe if we trained people for two more months, things would look slightly differently. This was a very short-term intervention. After yeah. all, five days is not so much in the in the terms of motor learning. Perhaps our brain is actually somehow distinguishing between, you know, moving just your toes and, and moving the third time. That's also an option. But that's something we were not able to unpack here and something we were not able to look at because we focused on the representation of our natural body. Mm-hmm. We didn't so much study the representation of this extra digit. And uh, this is, again, mostly for a mundane reason. Back when we started the study, the third time was not MRI safe. So yeah. we couldn't ask people to wear it in the scanner and move it because... Things could go really badly. <laughs> They'd have no hand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or heads or, you know, like, <laughs> instead of augmenting, we would be creating very disabled people potentially. <laughs> but uh, this is going to be possible quite soon because Dani has now upgraded the design and she designed an MRI compatible TAMP. So hopefully in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's not a, I would say it's a shoot off to, to the yeah. side. It's not an upgrade. It's an MRI safe version. Because obviously it requires a lot of lengths of tubing and some very, very large motors that are not wearable anymore. <laughs> I had to kind of pretty much convert the, the pipes that go across the wrist to uh, from about uh, five centimeters to about seven meters and then through a wall uh, into the control room of the MRI control room. So, well, well, apart from designing a third thumb specifically for MRI machines, did the study teach you, Danny, about how to adapt or improve potentially that design? Because originally it was a, it was done in an arts context. You, you wore it in a gallery setting, yeah. and and suddenly these things are on multiple participants out in the wild, being used in everyday life. Did you, as a product designer, learn something from having your thumb in the hands, or I guess on the hands of real users? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I, I mean, the, the first the first model. I mean, it really couldn't even hold anything you know in particular it was it was just you know it was because I really was just focusing on the movement and and also I was really focused on that visual as element you know being art school and art and design school mm. and really focusing on that creating that balance with the size of the of the biological thumb and then as yeah as we kind of started uh, chatting with uh, Paulina it became very apparent that I needed to make some serious upgrades you know mostly to do with strength so you know at the size of the thumb how much you could grip it's hard because obviously with augmentation everything's on the outside Mm. so where we kind of have that kind of squishy part of the base of our biological thumb where some things can kind of rest obviously the base of the third thumb is is a kind of rigid element on the hand so the thumb needs to be slightly bigger than the biological thumb to in order to grip kind of the same as as our thumbs so there there's a lot of changes but I mean I have to say that almost every thumb I I make so so I make everything from scratch I 3D print everything myself and and I feel like at the moment every thumb I make is a, is an iteration from the one before because that's how many kind of ideas and new changes I'm having but yeah the thumb's going through a massive makeover at the moment and yeah in terms of strength so that that's been the main concern is that obviously when you do one thing and you can achieve that you know thing you want to do more you want to go oh I can pick up something heavier and bigger and, and stuff like that so we had kind of a couple of you know motor failures in terms of people kind of pushing it too hard but hey that's you know exciting for a designer uh-huh. to constantly wanting to upgrade. Well, this idea of brain plasticity, it does feel like 
Knowing that brain plasticity does have this uh, effect that allows us to integrate these tools and devices into our body, that becomes very exciting for the creation of cyborgs. Knowing that with small amounts of vibration, with 3D printing, uh, with careful and, and considered design, that we can start generating and creating a multitude of possible augmentations for the body. But is, is brain plasticity, is it a platform on which you can add new devices or is brain plasticity more of a bottleneck that needs to be overcome? Would it just be easier to just bypass all of the senses and the body and just jack these things directly into the brain? That's an excellent question. Actually, I feel like it's two separate questions. One about whether the brain plasticity is a bottleneck and the second one about should we make this brain controlled, right? I'll start with the first one. <laughs> so in terms of whether brain plasticity is our friend or our enemy here, we don't know yet. <laughs> it's something we definitely cannot sort of circumvent, but we don't have definite answers, right? With our study, we see that this brain plasticity is playing a part. It, it, it's happening. Something is changing in our brain, but we don't know if that's good or bad. It could be both, right? In a good sense, it could mean that our brain can find a better, more optimal, more compact representation of the body we already have. And then, you know, direct other resources to use these extras, it, whether these extras are extra senses or extra thumbs or extra whatever. But on the other hand side, similarly possible scenario is that it is a bottleneck. Mm. It has a limited number or resources that are now going all to our normal body, normal senses. And when we add something on top of that, we need to sacrifice a little bit of those resources to give to the extra. And that could potentially impact how we are able to control our natural body. You know, like very sort of dystopian scenario, it could make us more clumsy when like operating our natural hands. We unfortunately don't know which of the scenarios is true. Like our results support both of those. We don't see any sort of evidence of any behavioral changes or disruptions to how people control their bodies. But it's definitely something that should be kept in mind, that this can go both ways. And then in terms of whether this should be brain controlled, and uh, Danny for sure will also have some great insights on that. I mean, I think eventually, this is the way everything is going right now. People are so hyped and mm. interested in this brain machine interfaces. Everyone is trying to make everything brain controlled. but at the point where we are now, personally, I feel like there may be a little bit of an overkill because if we have a viable solution to use this kind of devices that does not require getting an invasive surgery and implanting electrodes in your brain and going through the risk of all the surgical procedures, then why not use that? Especially since that whole brain control story is not very, it's not trivial because mm. in terms of most of the BMI interfaces we see out there are being used by amputees or people that lost some function. So they have this freed up resources that they can devote to the control of the robotic arm or robotic whatever. Mm -hmm. But in case of augmentation, we don't really have this freed up resources. So figuring out which part of the brain we want to perhaps sacrifice a little bit or, you know, reroute is quite tricky. 
And, and, and Danny, the, what made you then look at the human body and look at the brain and go, you know what, what's the opposite of that? Well, the foot. So let's go down there <laughs> and use that as the uh, yeah. control mechanism. Did you, did you ever consider messing with uh, EEG machines to, to enable the closing of the thumb? Yeah, I didn't know any brain scientists. <laughs> but now you do. Uh, no, no, I did. Yeah, now I do. Yeah, no, I did look at muscle sensors. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously it was all kind of DIY, uh, you know, kind of Arduino stuff that I could get my hands on. Um, and obviously it was quite new for me. But, you know, what I realized on the, the arm, I, you know, I managed to get, you know, that bicep control moving a finger, you know, just that one degree of freedom, you know, more like a finger than a thumb. And then I just thought, well, you know, where else am I going to get another muscle control point and obviously emgs are you know so advanced Mm. you know beyond what what i had access to but i just really wanted it to be something separate something additional that was you know almost kind of away from the arm a little bit and you didn't kind of see it see me kind of flexing to kind of move this thing um and so i just kind of you know i did a bit of a you know study of the body and put you know sensors on uh on my friend and, and got them to move you know a lot and and kind of I really wanted to, to not impact so much. And, and, you know, one of the great things was about the feet and the toes in particular was people at the at start at this beginning couldn't work out how I was moving it. So uh. when I did, you know, my half year show, they were freaking out because they thought it was brain control because I was moving it so subtly, you know, with such a subtle you know movement of my body um, that they couldn't work it out. And I liked <laughs> that. So it was kind of separate away from, from the arm. Also being a product designer, I was inspired by other products. Mm. You know, we often use the feet to extend the, the, the task the hands are doing through specialized equipment, you know, drums, pianos, electric guitars, uh, sewing machines, but then more, you know, generalized equipment like driving. Mm. You know, you don't think about when you've got your hands in the wheel, you're looking forward, you don't think about your foot going down, it just goes down because of that kind of integration that, that you know, with, our, with that system of, of being in that, you know, using that kind of tool. So it kind of, um, it made sense. I, I'm not claiming it's the it's the best way forward. Obviously, you can't run upstairs and use a third thumb at the same time, but, you know, it's just, it's when you're seated, your feet tend to not be doing too much and it provides that kind of really dexterous proportional control that that I wanted from it. No, I always remember in conversation with Connor Rossomano who runs OpenBCI, he was looking at all of this hype around uh, brain-controlled 3D-printed prosthetics in around 2015 to 2016. And of course, he was looking at this stuff going you know, man, this is just spiking alpha wave. So if you want a prosthetic limb to close, just close your eyes and the thing will close. And he was at one point going to create a heart control prosthetic limb where every time your heart beat, your hand would close just to prove a point that, you know, even though the hype is brain control, 3D printed prosthetic, the the tech behind uh, what signals you can get from the brain were were very um, uh, basic at the time. There's a lot of these gaming devices that really just did, you know, alpha wave Spike. That was really all they could capture. But the the findings of the study, they're significant for multiple reasons. But one is the future of work, because learning that we can integrate these augmentations and they won't have massive long-term detrimental effects on the brain, that's going to be massively important for how how we look at the future of the workplace and how we enable individuals to use things like exoskeletons and other forms of industrial based augmentation. So Paulina, could you tell me a little bit about the importance of this study to to future ways in which we look at augmentative devices? 
Yeah, so, you know, there's so many things you could do better mm. if you had an extra hand or an extra pair of hands. And I think that applies to everyone in everyday life scenarios, but especially to certain kind of professions. I just spoke to a surgeon yesterday who is keen to, <laughs> yeah. uh, to, to work with the thumb. So, yeah, it's definitely, um, yeah happening <laughs> yeah it's like it's not made up scenarios it's it's it's, it's happening people are interested he's very excited and, and also surgeons are great kind of users because they just they put hundreds of hours into training on their equipment um and so would just be amazing users of of augmentation i think similarly electricians i think danny also had like an electrician contact uh-huh. you saying that yeah, he would yeah. love to have a third stamp right because like Think about it, they're soldiering a lot of things, you know, like putting a lot of components mm. together. They need to stabilize something called with, you know, these multiple clamps right now. But what if they could instead do it with an extra appendage or, mm. you know, going a little bit bigger scale, like engineers that have to do like work sometimes in dangerous circumstances. If they yeah. could have these extra appendages here being, you know, like very sort of hypothetical mm say two tentacle arms that are like heat resistant can get out of their body and they have full (laughs) control over it right that would make their life and work so much Uh easier or even you know holding something above your head and being able to like attach screws to it there are lots of work life scenarios that i think augmentation would really help in yeah and especially some scenarios where you know it's collaborative work you know you require an assistant and so just that collaboration of those kind of movements can really streamline it if you're kind of in control of, of those three or four elements, you know. Also, I just literally just had that thought, but, you know, in terms of ergonomics, like in a lot of workplaces, I don't know, um, in some factories, people are doing repeated movements every day, every day, every day. And there has been increased talk about how that affects, you know, their spine, mm. their back, generally their body health. And perhaps, you know, some of this load they're right now carrying and doing with their natural body could be done with these augmentative devices without impacting actually their natural body right so it would be more ergonomical yeah i mean that's merging kind of more yeah exoskeleton yeah it's it depends on yeah how, how we define you know augmentation yeah but surely you know you could grab something in a, with a tentacle arm and then it doesn't matter in what orientation you grab it right it doesn't affect <laughs> your position well, 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 it's clear that these these sorts of devices they have uh, very specific uses in very specific domains and, and often industry and I think the fascinating thing about the study is the fact that the brain is able to recover after its usage you don't want someone to be using a augmentative device and then taking the thing off at the end of the day, going home and feeling like they have something missing or that their brain doesn't feel quite rightly placed or they lose their dexterity in other ways. You need to know that the uh, the, the body, I guess, is this adaptive platform because uh, if you were to you know, strap up an Amazon worker with some augmentative device and it messed with them for the rest of their life, then that would be highly problematic. And and if I've read your study correctly, it, it does look like these things won't have that immediate detrimental long-term effect. So we need to be a little bit careful okay. of saying that because <laughs> yeah. we just did five okay. days. Yeah, yeah, five days. Yeah, we did actually, Pauline and I were just discussing this yesterday, actually, just about, yeah, long-term. Ethics. So yeah. with five days of using the TAMP and then not using it for a week, things went back Uh to normal, which is great. And we are like so happy they did because precisely (laughs) of the reasons you mentioned, right? We're not sure when they went back Uh to normal. Maybe it was even a shorter term change that we thought because 
we didn't take an intermediate scan, right? We took one after the training and then a one week after and nothing in between. But the big question is if those people were using and wearing that for eight hours mm. a day for two months or half a year or a year, would it would it sort of bounce back to normal equally fast or would it at all, right? Because I guess the big worry here is that if it doesn't bounce back, you may actually, instead of augmenting people, be creating new mm. disabilities. If Danny, for example, yeah. who might be a willing participant in a, a long-term <laughs> study, and then long after a year study. we, we, yes, we ripped her thumb that by then she's probably named away from her body, then she may start getting <laughs> the sort of phantom exactly. sensations that amputees yeah. get. And I think that's the, the most fascinating thing about these individuals who want to enhance themselves or add these additions and you look at someone like Neil Hobbison who's worn the thing mm. for 10 years taking it away would really be like yeah. repossessing his organs yeah yeah I mean I think that did, does Neil have his uh, actually implanted it's, now it's, I mean it's a, a little it's... bit controversial but as, as far as we're aware there is okay. some form of implant there it used to be a yeah. plug I now think it's yeah. a magnet but essentially it is integrated oh it's a magnet so similar to a co cochlear implant very similar to a cochlear implant so, but it is integrated right, into the body that okay. has been some surgical process yeah I think these discussions are really important especially when we're talking about technology that is then mm -hmm. removed is removable or removed uh, you know daily um you know if, if if we get to a point where things are are implanted are kind of some more stationary perhaps it's not a concern i don't know are you going to keep it for the rest of your life i don't uh -huh. know but when these things are removable we this is a really important discussion and and you know Paulina and i were kind of you know conceptually thinking about you know is there this kind of point of no mm. return and, and saying but how do we do the research to, to find that if you believe someone like amber case who says we're all cyborgs now then they're the very virtue of having a mobile <laughs> phone, it, I mean, That's that true. becomes a, that becomes uh, like an external organ for some people. And, and I wonder if there has been any um, studies looking at ripping people's shiny glowing rectangles away from them and finding out if they feel like they've lost an organ. I mean, people describe the phantom uh, vibration sensation of getting a text message when they leave yeah. their phone yeah. at home. I mean, yeah. that, that's, a, that's a very subjective sensation, although it's been described similar yeah. to uh, taking heroin away from people. <laughs> you know, it's the same sensations that... I, I wonder whether people would actually agree to that study, you know, whether you would be able to find volunteers that say, okay, take my no. phone away from me. Wow, it's I unethical. I've seen, a, I've definitely, I don't know if it was a full study, but some like a kind of proper, proper like with an interviewer and, uh, and they tested the anxiety mm. levels of someone. So they put their phone behind them and then called them and, and text them. So they just started hearing the vibration wow. of their phone or their ringtone. Uh, behind them and they, they and they were measuring their anxiety i guess through their heart rate and, and kind of sweat glands and stuff like that and they got just in, their anxiety just continued to skyrocket as the more and more they were not able to check their phone so i think there is definitely studies that are going well, well, it definitely <laughs> feels like that these these are the, the, all of these tools and all of these devices are heavily integrated with our body. But again, as you point out in the study, uh, there has to be a, a differentiation between something which is an augmentative device and a tool. The, the way in which the control group for the study was individuals who had third thumbs that they weren't able to move. And to them, it was really just this inconvenient addition, this, this tool, this piece of technology 
technology strapped to their hand, the, the movement and the sensation and the feeling like the human had control was the important thing. So perhaps, you know, in many ways, because the phone is such a, a dead device, because it does, there's no direct feedback with the body other than that vibration when you get notifications, then maybe we're talking about two completely different things here. This functions more as a, a tool rather than an assistive device. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this is a very hard distinction mm. to make, especially nowadays, like where does the tool end and augmentative device begin, right? And this is one of the ways to look at it. And personally, I think I'm 100% on board to say that, you know, if there is some sort of feedback loop, if I'm controlling it and getting something back mm. from it, it's more on the side of augmentation. And that's not something that's happening with my phone. But perhaps even importantly, in the context of the work that we do in the lab, you know, we define tools as these things that you use to get around to do things better, faster, reach, you know, at a larger distance. But that it's really just something you hold in mm. your hand. You find, you know, like a grasp that you like, that fits the device, that, you know, fits your preferences and you hold it and, you know, write with a pen or hammer something down. But you don't really do anything weird with your hand. You don't really change the way you mm. use your body in order to operate that tool. You just hold it most of the time. And with augmentative devices such as third time, if you actually want to use them and benefit from using them, you have to completely change the way you use your hand. Because if you just go on and, you know, do everything as normal, then you're not using the third stamp at all. And if you try to do everything as normal and somehow incorporate the third stamp, perhaps it would not work. Because what you really need to do is find new finger movement patterns that would cooperate with this extra device. And it's this, this change in how we operate our body that I think also for me somehow creates this boundary between a tool and augmentation. And augmentation invites me to use my body in a different mm. way. A tool just allows me to do what I do every day without having to really upgrade or rethink how I do that. And those distinctions are highly important when we think about the cyborg and we think about cybernetics because the key, and, and it always has been in cybernetics, is the feedback loop. Yeah. You know, the, the, the thing that creates a relationship with body, technology, and, and, then, and then back again, which, which begins to open up some really interesting, I guess, ethical, philosophical, perhaps even legal questions. Because if, if Danny, you were wearing your device for maybe a, a year and I came up to you and for whatever reason, I deliberately damaged the third thumb, well, would we consider that grievous bodily harm or at that stage after having worn it for you know a year would that be still damage to property i mean there's so many yeah. weird sort of questions that we're going to have to confront that's a really that's a really interesting point i've never really thought about it like that yeah no i mean that's a societal and, and structural kind of legal change rather than you know how i felt because i would after wearing it for a year every day i'm sure i would feel like it was kind of definitely part of me also but just the fact that someone would, would do that would really hurt me <laughs> but um but that's such a fascinating well, question uh, you know, say, say for example you you were out at a bar and someone decided to just uh, do that or, or vandalize the thumb so i mean uh, these are the questions we're asking of prosthetic limb users uh, today because for example if someone's a congenital limb defect 
patient, i.e. they were born without uh, a limb and they have a prosthetic, that's suddenly seen as a device which they're wearing. Whereas an amputee, uh, someone who lost an arm, has a prosthetic limb, that's now seen as something that's restoring a functionality they've lost as opposed to you know, giving a functionality that they never had. So those two things are fundamentally different. Then there's the question of how it's integrated. I mean, it's a, in many ways, the third thumb is a wearable. It's not surgically embedded into the, into the hand yet. Maybe when you mentioned surgeon earlier, I thought you meant they wanted to do that. I didn't realize you meant- oh, no, 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 sorry. No, no, I said you want to use it, it took me a while. Thumb. It took me a while Sorry, to realize. Yeah, 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 to do surgery. To do surgery. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. A hand surgeon who wanted to surgically implant the third limb is is how I first yes. heard that. But no, yes. no, no, no. It makes sense now that no. you know it, it allows them to hold an extra so scalpel. Probably there are surgeons like that yeah. out there too. Yeah. And there might be someone who's willing to do that. And if it was, and in the same way, prosthetic limbs, if they're osseointegrated integrated mm. into the body, where basically they're they're hammered into the bone, that's seen as a a, a mm. deeper connection between the technology and the body than, say, just wearing a prosthetic limb with a traditional uh, socket. So it feels like there's all these boundary conditions that a study like yours starts to open us up to. And and I guess my question is, what are some of the most fascinating future-looking questions that your work is provoking and, and that you would love to explore? Firstly, can I just jump back to, you know, congenital one-handers and, and amputees? Uh-huh. I think as a society, obviously, we see someone with yeah, yeah. one arm, you know, and we make, you know, certain people make assumptions. And, you know, having, you know, spoken with a lot of people from both groups, such different, yeah. <laughs> like, experiences. And we so often group them in, in one as a person with one arm. And it's just so, you know, so you know, wrong to do that because they're just the experiences are, are so are so vastly different. And you know, I've made I've you know spoken to high level users of um of prosthetics that are both congenital and amputees and having very similar relationships with mm-hmm. their prosthetics. And so and and so I think that it's you can't kind of assume just because someone has you know suffered a loss that they perhaps or, or perhaps have you know a phantom that they would perhaps be more connected with their prosthetic because it's you know it's very different. And, and but then. Vastly on other end of the spectrum is, is you know congenitals who you refuse to wear yep. a prosthetic because actually that because they were born their whole self you know and actually it's quite disabling because if you can think of you know the end of their arm is like our hand so if you were then to add another arm onto your end of your hand that's kind of how it feels like or or covering the so- the socket covering um you know their kind of functional part which is their inner inner elbow and so these groups are really you know different and and then also you know with with um, amputees as well uh, you know a, a guy actually contacted me it was one of one of the <laughs> emails I think I've got out of this whole process was is him kind of going it was amazing to see your third thumb someone's finally talking about this and and you know he goes I I've had an amputation when I was young and you know I've been given a pro- like multiple prosthesis across my life and I've always felt like it's my third arm mm. because it was it's his third arm that he's had you know and so 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 often we think oh you know it's this easy kind of fix it's this you know oh, oh the phantom just slots right into the, yeah. the prosthetic arm it absolutely does not everyone's phantoms is so different you know i spoke to a girl in the lab and her phantom is kind of up against her body and very tight and then her you know prosthetic then comes out of the you know her mm. off her residual limb so it's just so technically she kind of has this kind of dual arm kind of sensation and so i think that you know it's it's such a complex relationship and and experience is so personal even just uh, you know we discussed the lab a lot about you know descriptive words for writing you know papers about you know mm-hmm. individuals and if, even the individuals themselves and within their kind of specific groups 
I, I do not agree with with how they like to be referred to. And so it's kind of like this ongoing discussion that needs to ha- uh, happen around even the word pr- prosthetic versus yep. augmentation. You know, for, for a lot of prosthetic users, in quotes, would see their prosthetic as an augmentation. So it's just, you know, I think that we just need to come up with some new <laughs> words because there's not enough words <laughs> and just kind of and really just, you know, work on the individual and their experience about this technology as opposed to kind of just wanting to, I mean, we just love putting things in boxes, mm-hmm. don't we? So we like love to kind of group people together. But I think that's why it's fascinating for me is, you know, it's just we're just at the beginning of this really exciting, you know, work into working with the body and, and extending, just extending the human form. Why do we have to talk about replacement yeah. or fixing or, you know, disability or something? You know, it's just we're extending both augmentation and prosthetic in the current you know, terms where, you know, defining them as are extending the human body. Mm-hmm. You know, these words we use to talk about prosthetics, which are replaced, are mm. actually quite restrictive, right? Because that implies that we want to mimic this body part we lost quite ideally, like uh, as much as possible. And we cannot. It's just it's just yeah. impossible. I feel like, you know, to a certain extent, our brain is always going to know this is mm. not your hand. This is not your leg. And, you know, we see these prosthetic devices, especially for lower limb amputees, that actually allow them to do more, like run faster, yeah. for example, than, you know, a normal person. I mean, lower and upper, is uh, they're very different fields as well. Yeah. So is that still replacement? Is that still regaining the lost function? Or is that already, you know, enhancing and mm. augmenting? I think like this, this boundary is very fluid. And, uh, you know, this is also one of the things that come out of this study, we don't really need to fixate so much on this idea of this needs to work and look exactly mm. like my body part. If it doesn't, most likely your brain can still deal with it. And perhaps it even it even would be better. Like with amputees, they most like very often reject their prosthesis, as Danny said. And surprisingly, the ones that get rejected the least are the ones that are nothing like mm-hmm. the hands, both in terms of functions and looks, the, the hooks, the prosthesis that are yeah. controlled with the movement of your shoulder. Yeah, that, that's proportional control. It's manual proportional control from your shoulder. So there's something there that, you know, the myoelectric has that disconnect yeah. with, with the control that the hooks don't have. Yeah. I was good friends with the late Nigel Ackland who uh, always, you know, yes. always used to uh, talk about this stuff with his tongue thermally in his cheek. And we did a lot of events around this thing called prosthetic envy. <laughs> he was the, and we, we used to call him the pioneering pilot of the most advanced prosthetic limb, which was at the time the, the B-bionic yeah. uh, Three and people would used to go up to him and they'd they'd look at him with this beautifully designed robotic prosthetic limb and look at it with desire with envy going oh my god I want one and he used to respond uh, well it's the most exclusive club in the world and it's going to cost you an arm or a leg to uh, to get in. That's a fair response. And then he would give them the realities of the of the limb because even though he'd be put on a pedestal and be shown to be a vision for the future of humanity, the reality was the interface between the skin and the prosthetic limb was very tender. He was a he was an amputee, so yeah. you know he yeah. had sharp bone and, and very new flesh from a very new skin. So having something suction cupped onto your body for a long duration of time, every time he 
sweated, it would become uncomfortable. He couldn't wait to get the thing off at the end of the day. Yes, he would show up for the TED Talks and the you know Wired Science Talks and show the thing off, but the reality on the ground didn't match the fiction within people's heads when they would look at a prosthetic limb user like him and think, oh, wow, I can't wait to cut off my arms so I can get a, a new robotic prosthetic. <laughs> yeah. and we have to be careful with those, yeah. those imaginings of what these things actually are. Yeah, yeah I spoke to... Um, um, yeah, during my dissertation, I spoke to yeah a prosthetist in London, and he said that yeah one of the biggest challenges is is managing people's expectations, yep. managing people's expectations, and and unfortunately you know there is so much kind of tech hype around you know because obviously the connection with robots and, and you know the future and you know it's especially those in lab videos of of this kind of high level yeah. use that we're not seeing out of the lab i want to see it i want to see it in a yeah. field i want to see it in, in your home you know i want to see it you know in a real life scenario so that people can manage their expectations of this technology because we're not designing in bone and flesh and blood yet. Mm-hmm. you know like there is you know still limitations so people kind of you know you're having suffering a loss and going oh don't worry i'm going to be fine like yeah they will be but it'll take time and it's you know and yeah there is a kind of big drop-off point with, with these um high level prosthetics because the cognitive load is crazy high yep. like they have to train like almost every day like we spoke to one of the high level users of of, of, of a kind of the bionic like one which is the island and she yeah she has to train every day mm. to use it you know sit still so it t- takes a lot of effort and i think people are underestimated a little bit and expect that it's just kind of going to be a, a lot simpler so i'm hoping this technology keeps developing to make it easier for these users yeah, because on all these flashy videos and, you know, advertisement, it just looks like plug and play, but yes. it is plug and <laughs> plug, train. Plug, plug and train. And, yeah. and I, I mean, and it, <laughs> plug and Danny, you certainly know a thing or two about creating flashy videos. And I just wonder, what are some of the responses? Do, do people email you begging for an extra thumb? Do you get constant <laughs> yes, inbound going, absolutely. when will it be available? When can I buy one? Will it come with a Bluetooth speaker? I mean, what is the uh, sort yeah, of... How much does it cost? Yeah, how much does it Course, what are some of the crazy emails Absolutely. that you get, Danny? Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm a team of one in terms of you know creating them at the moment, and so I, I'm, I'm definitely you know interested in pursuing it further. But you know, obviously, the research is my main focus at the moment. But I get, yeah, I think, yeah, definitely emails every day um, asking for people to buy it. So there's definitely mm. interest. I just want to make sure it's the best it can be before putting it out into the market, and also being sure that you know I'm not going to mess with people's brains too much. Um, <laughs> oh, well, well, I'd be remiss in a, in a discussion on augmentation not to ask you both. What sort of augmentations, apart from a third thumb, what sort of augmentations would you personally want? And it can be as crazy as you as you choose. <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, for me, you know, I explored during my master's as well, just sensory extension as well, which is something that I created an interest in and then, and then uh-huh. didn't pursue because obviously pursued this kind of more of a motor, motor augmentation. But I really am fascinated with whiskers. I don't know why. <laughs> whiskers, like this, this kind of extension... <laughs> And I, I create a little prototype of, you know, having this kind of whisker on my hand. So, yeah, something something like that. But, yeah, in terms of kind of function, motor function, I think, that yeah, something, yeah, off the back. But, yeah, I, I mean, obviously I want a hand or something like that. But it'll be kind of a, I think, a three, three finger that can kind of rotate around and then just kind of different, exploring different spots on the arm mm-hmm. as well. I think it'd be really interesting in terms of the control to kind of ha- perhaps have a collaborative control perhaps the so inspired by you know the da vinci surgical system and in, in that they they kind of smooth smooth the kind of human mm-hmm. movements through that kind of control and so perhaps something a bit more smoothed um in, in terms of helping me with you know soldering and assembly <laughs> and, and paulina mm-hmm. what would you desire 
Yeah, I like I have two that I would, you know, not perhaps not want to have all the time, but as sort of wearables or maybe one of them all the time. One thing is in terms of sensory augmentation, just being able to see more colors, you know, like the whole waves spectrum like oh that's a good one <laughs> you know you read about dogs and bats and different animals seeing all these shades uh-huh. of colors that i cannot even imagine like you know yeah we read that they see that many colors and i i, I just i just cannot begin to grasp it right because to me the color spectrum is finished <laughs> so i'd like to see them they've designed a, a camera now i think i watched a documentary recently about like and they've designed a camera that can see in like infrared colors and and, and ultraviolet colors so surely it's not that far away to to then kind of convert that kind of camera input into something that we can like understand yeah. So that's one. And the second one is on the motor side. And that's definitely something to be taken on and off. I'd like to have wings. I mean, you know, who doesn't want to fly every now and then? There's always one. There's there's always one. And, you know, just to like fly to my friend's house, you know, have a drink, fly back home. What, what kind, kind of wings? Would you like biomimic? Would you do a biomimicry like, uh, you know, like butterfly, bird? No. Or bat? No, no. Or I would bat, go like sure. full bat. crazy, you know, like dragon wings. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> that's not even biomimicry, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> Pulling a dragon's on wheel. Sorry to, sorry to burst your bubble. Yeah, oh. so some, someone has clearly been watching too much Game of Thrones. Well, I can't wait. <laughs> to see both of you at Comic Con very soon, and Danny with her with her furry whiskers, and and Paulina with her with her dragon uh, wings, and uh, on that provocative note about what the future of the human might potentially look like, please sign me up for the next study. I'm I'm quite happy to uh, to to be a user of a third thumb, and I want to thank you both for taking the time for being on the Futures Podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's been lots of fun. <laughs> Thank you to Danny and Paulina for showing us the ways in which the human body can be used as a platform for a multitude of augmentation devices. You can find out more by downloading their latest paper in the Science Robotics Journal. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.